Hello and welcome to Nerd Punches Nerd, the only podcast where a bunch of nerds pretend to physically fight over minor pop culture minutiae. I'm Jeremy, here with Benji and Sam, and uh, can we give a Tarantino ho? Ho! Ah! Bleeding everywhere! That's right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, ho. Tarantino ho. Uh, so today, we're gonna be discussing... In the Christmas spirit. Is it the the Christmas spirit? (laughs) That's right. The holiday spirit of red and more red. Yes. And also stylized black and white red. We're going to be discussing the films and oeuvre of the famed Crazy Balls director, Quentin Tarantino. Now, many have accused Quentin Tarantino of not having a style of his own and just copying other people. But I say to them, nay, because you can recognize a Tarantino movie. Some movies, you know, you're like, I don't really, I can't tell who directed this. They don't really have a style. I mean, sometimes that happens intentionally. Like, if you look at the Game of Thrones stuff, they intentionally try to make their directors look in a similar way so that it's consistent inside the television show. Uh, that's also that's, that's the case for all TV shows, but you know, saying in like in Game of Thrones, especially for each of their environments, they need okay. This, these are the aesthetics, and this is how it's going to look. And this is how we're going to shoot things. You know, with some variations, and some people can push things a little bit more than others. You know, so I think that with Tarantino, though, you can really tell that a movie is a Tarantino movie. You know, the way he cuts the action. The way the dialogue happens is obviously a big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and just sort of the way he sort of tries to mess around with you a little bit. Also, that there's always, there's always the, um, besides just the tension thing, there's always the, um, fuck, I'm forgetting the term for it, um, not the confrontation scene, but there's always like that, um, at, at least like one scene where it's like, it's like you don't know, like, um, you don't know whether it's you know when it's about to get really violent mm-hmm. what's going to happen you know the like I, I don't know what you call it the oh there's yeah there's there's this like dramatic tension because things can turn but if you if you're savvy right and you're familiar with with Tarantino films in general you know that like scenes that are not violent can suddenly turn violent very quickly right but, but, but I, he, I almost feel like that's that's a feature of the like you're talking about something like awareness as a fan of Tarantino, whereas somebody who's coming right. into it, you know, like a naive viewer who doesn't, isn't familiar with Tarantino, isn't expecting that, so they don't have that same sense of tension because they're not waiting for it to happen. Yes. Right. Yes, I think that's true. So that brings me to my first question, which is, do you guys remember the first Tarantino movie you saw? Uh, the first Tarantino movie that I saw was Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. I think I saw it when I was in college. Actually, no, I'm not sure if I saw Pulp Fiction first or Reservoir Dogs. It was one of those two, because I definitely saw both of them around the same time. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I, I might have seen Reservoir Dogs first. Yeah. Well. Let's go with Reservoir Dogs. I mean, Reservoir Dogs obviously came out first. Uh, but I think for me, it was also Pulp Fiction that I saw first. And that was one of those, like, what the hell is this? Yeah, but, yeah, know, it definitely has that effect on you. Um, I think, actually, Kill Bill, the first one, was the first one I saw. Really? You saw uh, that before the yeah, anything else? I, I'm pretty sure I saw that before Pulp Fiction, because I think that got me... Because I had heard of Quentin Tarantino, but remember the whole, the whole ad campaign, and even it says it in the beginning of Kill Bill, 
Kill Bill Volume One. It said the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino. Remember that was the whole thing they kept pushing. Yeah. So like. Yeah, I, I do remember that. Yeah. So, so I was. I, I think I, I remember like thinking I heard I heard this name, but who's Quentin Tarantino? And then people were talking about the movie, and so like I um you know I think it was after that that I saw Pulp Fiction, and maybe then after that Kill Bill Volume Two. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. In general, what are your feelings about Tarantino? Love it. <laughs> um, he, uh, um, well, I guess you guys should talk first because uh, it was my idea to have uh, the Tarantino cast, so I maybe I should explain myself last. Well, I think that you have some strong opinions, so why don't you explain okay. where you're coming from? Um, I mean... There are a lot of things to unpack, but I guess the the the, the big thing is the, the big things are that it just strikes me how amazing it is that he's able to and I and I've really been actually thinking about this over over the years, like for over ten years since I've been really getting into any of his films. He has this weird but kind of astonishing um, um, skill to make, I guess you could say, the mundane, not really the mundane, but the normally non-dramatic really dramatic. So, you know, he makes someone getting shot or someone getting mad or someone stealing something a really big deal. And that's what often will carry a movie, so to speak. He doesn't get into, at least not, not overly so, maybe very, very subtly, he doesn't get into big, like, metaphors or things like that. Um, I think that's there, definitely. And hearing him talk about stuff, you know, talk about his movies, definitely. There's there are there are a lot of ideas that go into what he what he does. But that always that always strikes me about it. And then also there's just the um, there's the careful like consideration with which everything is is shot. And you know, I'm always impressed with stuff like that. And also you can tell so much that he's just it's he's just such a fan of things. He's a fanboy himself. That when you're watching it, you like become a fan of it. It's like it's like really listening to like an awesome rock band. You know what I mean? It has that like feeling to it in a weird way. It's like it hits you in the right places, but without cheating you, it's still making you feel something real. Um, and I pretty much enjoyed all of all of the movies that I've seen of his. The only one I haven't seen is um, Death Proof, that Grindhouse one. But otherwise, I've liked it a lot. Well, I, that's a really. I'm sorry. I I really like that uh, comparison to a rock band. Mm-hmm. You know, like when they put out a new album, and mm-hmm. you're like, you're familiar with their work, so you kind of know what it's going to be like, but you don't know exactly what it's going to be like. But you, you know, if you like the band, then you, you can reasonably expect that you're going to like new album. Maybe it's not quite as good as the old album. You know, like it's it it sort of works, I think, pretty well mm-hmm. in comparison because Tarantino definitely has a you know a distinct yeah, style for his movies, and if you like one of them. Probably like the other ones too, right? You know, so not, it's not sort of like, case, but, you know. like you know, if a new Metallic album comes out, you know it's going to be a lot of, and <laughs> you know if it's a no, new wait, wait, if wait, it's wait, a wait, new wait. you know if it's a new Limp Bizkit album, you know you're going to be like, huh? <laughs> and if it's a new Nickelback album, you're going to be like, nope. So well, it's well, all dropping these days are also a little different with the age of the internet. Well, that's true. But I even think like, if you look at like different kinds of movies, like a Spielberg movie is so diverse in terms of like what he covers, you really like I don't know, it's going to be some kind of epic thing. It's probably going to be John Williams. But other than that, 
You, it's gonna you be kind of epic. It's gonna be about like like family. Relationships. Yeah, you can usually and predict. It's, and it's certain gonna be parts. very watchable. That's that's the thing with Spielberg. Yeah, but then like yeah, someone like say Paul Thomas Anderson, and his right. movies are gonna be like who the hell knows? Right, <laughs> I mean, right. the last uh, so I saw Inherent Vice, although I'm not really supposed to talk about it yet because it hasn't come out yet. But I will say it's very different from The Master, which is very different from There Will Be Blood. They're all like different kinds of intensity. They're all different kinds of you know styles. You know, there is a lot of like good acting in them, but that's like right. uh, that's not really like a surprise considering who yeah. he gets. But with Tarantino, it's like it, you know, th- th- I mean, there's there's like a range for like there, there's like a style that he does. But it, but the other thing that's really cool that I find is that there's this kind of cool natural progression to his movies. Like he's advanced. It's kind of like gradually, but he's advanced, and he's just gotten better so that he can take on bigger concepts. That's the other thing, too. It's like these last two movies, and we should talk about them you know, in the podcast, but like these last two movies were more about like actual, like you could say, social thing. Like there were definitely historical pieces and kind of these like social you know, issues, which he didn't touch before, and you might not have even expected out of him beforehand. But it's kind of been, but there's still these Tarantino movies. You know what I mean, and that's that's one thing that that I, I find really impressive. So yeah, I mean that's my general thought, and, and he's not, I wouldn't even call him my favorite director. You know what I mean? But like I always, it is one of those things that like I always like what he what he puts out, and I and I and I like supporting it and all that. Well, I think it's interesting also because uh, we'll get into this, but he also has a lot of people that he likes to work with in the same way. A lot of times you see like specific. Directors who like working with the same people, you know, obviously, That's Chris, cool. I mean, Christopher Nolan obviously has done that, you know, with Rosengard Levitt and Hathaway, just for example, you know, Morgan Freeman, I mean, of course, Michael Kine, Michael been, Kine has been in a couple of his movies, not just The Batman, but also The Prestige and Interstellar. So I think that, you know, he has like people he likes. And I think that's stereotypical. It makes sense, you know, if you feel like you have a rapport with people that you can keep working with them, it makes sense to do that. You know, I think there may be some who are a little bit more um, specifically well-known that, like, oh, yeah, this this collaboration has happened a lot. But I right. think we can get into that Well, a Tim bit. Burton, you know, keeps reusing the same actors in his movies, for instance. Yeah, although it's funny because another movie that hasn't come out yet called Big Eyes... Stars uh, Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz, and yeah. it's like it's the least Tim Burton movie I think I have ever seen, and I got to tell you, it is one of his best. That's that's kind of good though. Yeah, I, I think I think I can even get that from what you're saying, but like, well, he's yeah. a guy who needs to branch out and like try to do yeah. something a little different. Yeah, well, he's getting stale. I think, or he was getting stale. I think we can start by just sort of talking about each movie in turn. And as we sort of start seeing some of the connections and collaborators, we can sort of talk about that. So, if it's interesting, I think, if we start from the first one that he did, I mean, sure you could talk about, like, true romance or whatever, but I, I'm not really interested in things that he didn't direct. Mm-hmm. So, Reservoir Dogs was his first one, which is the one from 1992. And I wasn't permitted to be watching R-rated movies during that year. I <laughs> He's such a rebel. It caused a stir in the household. In the no, I, I didn't watch it. But <laughs> uh, I think 
the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs, it was in the middle of it, which is a terrible place to start watching that movie. Yeah. <laughs> but because, especially because of that like interesting opening scene where Quentin Tarantino gives like, yeah, this is what Madonna is really talking about, like a virgin, which of course is you know the obvious interpretation that was never in doubt. But the way he says it, it sounds like it's like, oh, oh, wow, what's it's so insightful. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark was about how, Indi- how, how about how Steven Spielberg was just really sad about, you know, his lost wife or whatever, because, uh, or really, I guess Temple of Doom was more about that, <laughs> because uh, the whole ripping out your heart thing, uh, because it actually is sort of what it's about. But that's besides the point. Reservoir Dogs is like, it also introduced this idea, which he didn't do in all of his movies, but but in a few of them, the sort of mixed temporal, you know, passages, you know, where you sort of start from like a little bit of a setup, but then it's like you jump to the end and then you show little bits and pieces of sort of how you got there to try to build up sort of a mystery. You don't really give the audience enough information to really figure it out because it's a lot of unreliable narrator type of stuff because you're showing very specifically picked points of view. And of course, this was also one of the things where, not just the pop culture thing, which has always been something that he loves to in, you know, incorporate, when it makes sense. But having himself in the movie is also something he, he likes to do as well. Uh, although, you know, you have Steve Buscemi... You know, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen. These are all people who have also shown up in some other movies, too. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of cool, but... I mean, for me, Reservoir Dogs is kind of a... It, it's a pretty good movie. Uh, although, it's funny thing is, it's like... The beginning, for me, is probably the most watchable part. Like, the first act. And the second act is not as interesting. Like, you know, that there's a reason that, like, that... When they're walking down that street, the iconic... Yeah. You know, like, walking down the street... Which is another thing that he does, which is trying to pick very interesting and almost obscure music that it's like perfectly fit. Right. That you would well, never have expected. It's, it's not just obscure music, it's like he's picking musical genres that you normally would never associate with whatever he's doing, but yeah. somehow it just makes so much sense when he does it. Yeah. Well, that, well, one of the yeah. classic. You know, incongruous musical moments was stuck in the middle with you, right? <laughs> as, the, as the cop gets tortured with the razor blade, right? And it's like, oh, uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's also like he's kind of a weird director. I mean, like it's so it's like watchable, but it's also like just like like it's so out but there. That and like you know, yeah. like another another classic one is like the intro to um uh to Pulp Fiction, which is this like surfer rock tune. Yeah. You know, yeah, which, yeah, like, yeah. now people are like, oh, yeah, that's so Tarantino. But, like, at the time, it was, like, totally weird that you would be you would have that yeah. style of music, you know, in a movie which is, like, you know, a sort of dramatic sort of action movie. Like, it, it just, I don't know. It's, um, it's something that I think nobody would have thought of until he did it. Well, I, I think there, there are some interesting things that you can look at about it. I mean, I think, actually, the first connection I ever had, and I know this is going to sound crazy, but it was The Simpsons. When uh, with an itchy <laughs> yeah. and scratchy, which was uh, 
making fun of the reservoir dogs. I think it was called reservoir cats and dogs or something like that. And it was basically, you know, itchy you, dancing to stuck it to a like a cover of stuck in the middle. Yeah. And yeah. then just yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. like slicing um, him up. But hold on, hold on. Let's look at reservoir dogs for a second. Well, I'm not done with it. Uh, I was I was going to say it's interesting because uh, do you guys know where the title comes from? Uh, go ahead. I don't. So apparently he used to work at a video store, and he liked to, as you might imagine, he liked to recommend little-known titles. So one time he uh, recommended Au revoir les enfants, uh, which is like a pretentious 1987 uh, autobiography movie. The patron-like reply, I don't want to see no reservoir dogs. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the as, you, as you probably know, the just like a lot of these things, you never hear the title in an explicit way right. in the movie. Now, that's not always the case. I mean, obviously, when we get a little bit later, we'll have explicit references to things. But I think it's kind of interesting that there's like this obvious, like, oh, yeah, well, what the hell is a reservoir dog? It, it doesn't really mean anything. And of course, as right. you said, and it's sort of like, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just also interesting because it was almost like legitimizing mainstream violence in some way, although obviously that didn't even get close to what happened, you know, with Pulp Fiction. Right, right, right. Well, I, I think what really struck me and what, what strikes me in general, you know, about Tarantino movies, but it did with Reservoir Dogs, is like he, you know, people talk about how cool, like, I think also especially used to be the case with Tarantino back with like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. People talk about how like like cool the movies are and, and whatever things like that. But it's like they're super emotional. Like it's really emotional like like stuff. And, and I I think I think plenty of people would agree. But like like in Reservoir Dogs, like it like hurts like when you're like that, that whole. I guess we have to do a major spoiler alert for all the Tarantino stuff. Of course, um, <laughs> for this for this movie, but for for this podcast, but but you like. Like I, I was like appalled. Like I mean, it was it was great, it was great, you know, movie making. But I was appalled. Like how long you're sitting there while like, this guy's like bleeding to death. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they show it. Like they stick with it. It's and it's fact, emotional, so, but it's yeah. I mean, it's more than that. Like we were talking about how violent the movie it is and how it you know it sort of like set a standard for like violent movies. But it's not just that like the movie was violent. Like there were plenty of violent movies before, but it's specifically uncomfortably violent. Right, you know, it's right. like it's like a kind of violence that is supposed to like, you know, you're not just supposed to like watch it and be like, oh, that's so cool. It's actually supposed to like churn your gut a little bit, you know, right. and right. like that's something that shows, you know, what a good filmmaker he is, that he can make something that's that's not only violent, but like specifically, you know, what draws these these emotions of, of like discomfort yeah. out of you in a way that like you know we we always talk about how you know Darren Aronofsky like likes to make movies in which the viewer feels uncomfortable in some way right. you know like mm -hmm. that's something else that Tarantino is good at and he specifically I think like that's the nature of his violence at least specifically yeah. in in Pulp Fiction well, I'm not no, in Pulp no, he's talking about Reservoir Dogs in Reservoir Dogs specifically like it's it's supposed to be uncomfortable and it's like that's part of why it was so shocking and why it got so much right. attention for being violent because the right. violence itself is like more than just violence it's like disturbing violence yeah right, right. And, and it's like and, and i think 
and actually, this goes to my like main point about Tarantino, which is I told you about some of the things that normally are considered trivial or just glossed over in movies. I mean, if you if you look at that, uh, if you look at that Reservoir Dogs scene, I think one of the reasons why also you connected with it is like he's sitting there with that guy. Like it, it's one of these weird things of like they're supposed to do a job, and for the most part, especially before then in, in movies, if there's people doing a job, they're still kind of cold and unconnected. Maybe someone gets killed. Maybe they someone say something emotional about their life and their dying breath. But it's like. Suddenly, even though they're doing this this like this like criminal job, like someone's actually dying. You know what I mean? And it's like that's that's a big deal. And he's like holding his hand, and then he has this whole relationship with him through the entire through the entire movie because he's kind of Harvey Keitel is kind of taking care of him. I forgot the guy's name. And then the Michael Madsen comes in and acts like terribly and and just all, all this shit. <laughs> oh well, don't forget that every character has a code name. Uh, oh yeah, the Mister whatever. Yeah. Right, and that was sort of part of it. Yeah, Harvey Keitel hold on, hold on. was Mr. White. Like, my, main, my main point, I just want to say, you know, as, as we're doing this th- discussion, is the main thing, I think I hit the nail on the head like a little bit. I think I figured out a little more um, of what, why these interesting, like these things with Tarantino, like these seemingly glossed over things, like just like simple people getting shot or stolen from or whatever, like feel like really important in the movies. Um, besides the fact that I've heard him say things like, Tarantino said things like, like you know, when people get shot, they don't just sort of fall over; they scream and stuff like that. But the point is, like, I think kind of his point or his point of view about things is that, come on, this is how people really are like. Like, we really are primal to a certain degree. Not that he's saying people aren't intelligent, but it's kind of like he reduces things to a little more primal level. Like, what we care about is we care about our physical body. We care about the the people we love around us. We have these like strong connections, and that's like that's kind of life. You know what I mean, and it's and and that's really our our experience. It's not like some big, um, some big social, you know, thing, or you know, it's it's not this like big statement. So I don't know. Do you guys agree with that in any way? Well, I think I think part of the reason why you say like, you know, he um, you know, it seems like it's such it's a big deal when something happens to his characters because he cares about his characters. Even though, like, his movies have a lot of characters in them, um, you know, like, he tries to to have each one of them be, like, a fully realized human being, you know, with the whole story behind them. Right, right, um, right. And I think that's actually striking. Like, when we get into um, Kill Bill later on, that'll become important because in right. Kill Bill, there are lots of characters who are, like, basically cardboard you know, figures, like, they don't actually do anything. Like, specifically, I'm thinking of, like, the crazy 88. Right. Like, but actually, think about it like, this way. You know, Com- yeah, for Com- Uma Thurman to cut with a sword, right? Com- yeah. But, like, right. his other movies, you know, that was a big that was a big change for him. Like, his other movies, all the characters are, like, people. And when stuff happens to them, it matters because, like, we relate to them as people. Well, Kill Bill still has that for plenty of characters that are killed, too. But, I, 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 yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but don't um, forget, yeah, but, you know... Compared to someone like George R. R. Martin, yeah, there's a there are plenty of characters that die that we don't know anything about. They're just sort of random thugs and violent people, and and you know he's considered like you know one of the preeminent characterization persons, right? Right, right. So, um, so what about Pulp Fiction? Well, so Pulp Fiction is interesting. So that was the first movie I saw. You know, obviously, you know, we were saying how it wasn't the case for. Uh, all of us, but I don't remember if I saw the one that was sort of the you know TV version that wasn't as good or the real version. But it, soon enough, I saw the real one, 
You know, it came out in 1994, and this one was like everything that Reservoir Dogs was, except more so. You know, it was so, you know, I guess pulpy is the right word, you know. Everything was just like taken to certain extreme levels. And it's also interesting because there's so, you know, it's one of the cases of, you know, a, a similar thing that he's done before, of course, as well, which is empathizing with criminals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that, I think it's interesting that he does it like that, uh, because it's certainly, it's certainly a, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I guess, I guess I was just trying to think about what makes the most sense. You know, it's not just, it's not just criminals. I think he empathizes with characters who are like marginalized. And so in some cases, those, those would be criminals. Um, but not always, you know, I mean, like when you look at Pulp Fiction, a lot of the characters in Pulp Fiction aren't criminals, you know, like, well, or at least, um, Bruce Willis, you know, for instance, isn't, I guess most of them are. I mean, he, well, I, he's I a kind of criminal. People who are living, who are living in more extreme situations. But people, yeah, people, that, that, people that who are, more of it. well, just think about it this way. Right? He, for one reason or another, people who are desperate, yeah. people who yeah, are yeah. struggling, you know, um, people who have well, strong emotions yeah, huh? about something for for a reason, you know, like those are those are the kind of characters he's interested in. Not not he doesn't seem to tell stories about people who are in power, you know, people mm-hmm. who are like in charge and have like underlings under them, um, you know. Yeah. I mean, like, you it's could like say a maybe to a certain degree, maybe um, maybe Marcellus. Kind of yeah. is, but then like well, Marcellus has an arc. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but I think it's. I mean, listen. If you you once you start like getting into trying to interpret things, you can always find things like, oh, well, wait a minute. They didn't. The way that he got um, the two like people that really hated each other together is because they were confronted by a redneck sodomist. You know, and right, it's like right, right, it's right. like you have to get into like the you know, the sexual fetishism, that's the real evil. Yeah, no, it was just, it was just crazy, because it was like, how are they going to come together? And it's like, it's this weird thing, and you expect, and even like, the great thing about it is what Marcellus, like, offered to him at the end. Like, it, it, it wasn't, this wasn't a problem that was expected. We were like, oh, that makes sense totally with the situation. It makes sense that, that he wouldn't kill him right there, that he would, Marcellus wouldn't kill him, but just say, you're never allowed to go to, come to L.A. again. It was like yeah. a very good understanding you know, what you does Marcellus Wallace look like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the, the, I think that there are so many interesting characters in this. I think it's hard to say, but it may be it's one of the it's one of the better casts of characters. It's the movie that you know turned John Travolta into a star after having yeah. you know f- failed out. It catapulted Samuel Jackson to, to start on. Right. You know, and he was just doing, he kept doing, of course, after that, many, many, many small character pieces in who knows how many movies, but, you know, that was, like, one of the big ones. And he's also, like, it's one of those things, like, he's actually, like, a really pretty fantastic actor, like, with actually, like, a good range, you know, like, like he's, mm-hmm. I haven't seen a lot of things with a lot, a lot of different range, but I think he can pull it off more so than people think, and he's, and he he is very human. Like he's not mm-hmm. he's not a caricature. 
Yeah. Right. Well, you know, being talking about about Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. so it's interesting because I, um, you were talking about him not being a caricature. I read in an interview that Tarantino actually wanted him to have like a huge giant afro, and <laughs> he basically vetoed the idea, um, and like you know basically like cut it down to like just like a normal afro that's not like insane, and mm-hmm. it made his character instead of being like a like a caricature, it made him into like more of like a like a regular person even though he is like over the top so right, right. so in a way that's sort of like i feel like tarantino's instincts were like getting away from him and 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 jackson kind of like reined him back in yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. i mean obviously the whole thing he did with like you know the different kinds of burgers and everything is sort of another one of those iconic different kinds of what burgers 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 not perverts. You're the pervert. Uh, that's what did you say? I, you, the what? the I whole conversation they have about hamburgers, you know, with oh, the, the, the yeah. Royale with <laughs> cheese and then you know. How, how was he able to make these like these like kind of not once again not necessarily mundane, but just these conversations interesting? Like they're really interesting, you know, somehow. Right, and they're very mundane. They are mundane. That's the right word. They're but, very mundane. But somehow they're interesting at the same time. Well, it's interesting because of the characters and the incongruity. I mean, there's also like it, also like sudden violence, like when Philmar gets shot, and suddenly it's like, so what do you, kabam, his head explodes. It's like yeah. so violent that you're like, yeah. whoa, I just like, you know, obviously there's the literal heart-stopping moment and heart-starting moment in the movie with Uma Thurman. Right. But... You know, this is another example to bring in Harvey Keitel, another one of his, uh, you know, collaborators to come back. I, I mean, I, a lot of people say this, this is one of the best movies ever. And I think that's true. It's just, it fits together so well. And it's yeah. so rewatchable. You know, yeah, sure. Some, you know, now you see, oh, this character is going to die. It doesn't matter because it, it all works. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with the, really, just with the exception of the redneck guys, basically everyone has some kind of interesting aspect. Even Tim Roth and his crazy yelling honey bunny character, Tim Roth has sort of like an interesting, like, well, they have a little, you know, tete-a-tete with, uh, you know, Samuel Jackson. That was like, it's kind of enthralling to watch. Like, hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 So... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. So let's uh, let's move on to his next one, which was Jackie Brown. Now, I actually saw this. Go ahead, sorry, go ahead. What I was going to say is with Jackie Brown, I saw that basically in the theater because it was like, oh yeah, well, geez, uh, I really liked Pulp Fiction, so I should see this one. And mm-hmm. it was another one of these kind of like weird time things. It, this one's actually based on a Finn Elmore Leonard novel, and it's like specific. Uh, you know, it has Pam Grier in it who was a black exploitation star and it sort of plays on that idea right with the way it's structured in a lot of ways obviously i think one of the for me one of the iconic things in it was samuel jackson's little thing he says about ak-47s do you uh you remember that Ben? you just saw it what was it what did he say about ak-47s when you positively absolutely have to kill right no, I remember him talking about it. I don't remember the line. Well, every uh, MFer in the room. What ex- about them? AK-47. 
That's what he says. But it's interesting right. also because he plays a different kind of character who's more of a, like a villain, I would say. Yeah, no, no, he's he's like a real villain. Well, hold on, so I was going to say about Jackie Brown, it's like, I just saw it recently for the, for the first time, and like, I really liked it. I understand it. It's not one of those things you could say is like his best one or whatever, but it is actually very different in a lot of ways. And also, you know, they, in terms of like their, their tense scenes, like the, you know, the, uh, like the climactic scene, it was weird because it had this like anti-climax. Like, but I didn't feel unsatisfied, but it was very interesting. Like, like often he will have a big shootout or a fight, but it just ended up happening that the cop came out and shot and shot the bad guy. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and it was just like it, that was just interesting. You know, so the, the way, I guess the big the big surprise is when also people forget that Robert De Niro was in it and was and was really believable and awesome in it. Mm-hmm. And like when he shoots that and he shoots that, that that girl in the parking lot all of a sudden like that was like whoa like because like, he thought like oh he's probably gonna hit her or something like that but he just fucking takes out a gun and shoots her yeah in the stomach. I mean, uh, this is interesting because this is Michael Keaton, and Michael Keaton is a, really actually a very talented actor, but he was sort of going through obscurity for a really long time after Batman, and this was one of the few movies that he did that had any kind of notice at all, and then it was sort it's of, kind of ironic back to because, because other stuff. Because Jackie Brown is like probably the least famous of Tarantino's movies and the one that got the least amount of attention, you know? Yeah. So like you're saying like, Oh, you know, this is like the only thing Michael Keaton did that got lots of attention, but it didn't even get that much attention. Right. Well, I mean, after this, he, uh, he didn't even do that much. He did like that terrible snowman movie, the Jack Frost, I think it was called. Oh God. Yeah. And you know, then you know he, they said you demand dad. No, I'm the snowman. Is that what that's from? Probably. Uh, yeah. And so it's like, but the thing is, it's interesting because this this year, this movie Birdman just came out, and he was fantastic in this movie. And what's great about it is he plays an yeah. act, you know he plays a guy yeah, who's basically like who's a decent actor but not a great actor, and that's the kind of nuance that could easily be screwed up. But he does such a great job. In fact, uh, so you know, like we have uh, the local film awards, the DC Critics Association. So we actually gave it to Michael Keaton this year for Best Actor. Oh, yeah. Cool. Now, in, you know, I may have thought some particular ones might have been better, but you know, I thought he definitely gave it an amazing performance. Uh, he was really good. Uh, the best movie went to Boyhood, but you know, that's a different sort of thing altogether. Uh, I would have to say that this is the least memorable movie for me. Yeah. At least that I've actually seen all the way through. But it was enjoyable to watch. Uh, it, was solid, it was a solid movie, and and like the whole thing with like um, the whole thing also like when Samuel Jackson. It's still believable when he like, kills Robert De Niro. Like that was that was done. That was just done really well because it was like yeah, you know he's taking out the gun, and you know he probably is going to do something with it. But the way he does, it, even you don't even see him pull the trigger. You know what I mean? He just shoots him all of a sudden, and all these like guts splatter or whatever, and you're like whoa, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so what do you think, Sam, about Jackie Brown? Yeah. Well, I can't really say much about Jackie Brown because I haven't watched it. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Unfortunately. Sorry. Oh. Yeah, I know that we're doing a whole podcast about Quentin Tarantino. I've seen oh, most no, of his I movies. Sorry, sorry, I spoiled it. But... I've, I've seen most of his movies, yeah, but uh, I haven't seen that one, so uh, <laughs> I don't have much to say about it. Well, um, all right, well, let's, let's move on then. Okay. So, yeah. you know, that movie came out in 97, so it was 92, then 94, 
then 97. So that's two years, two years, three years. A pretty decent. Right. I'm trying not, right. you know, and then, but the next one, six years later, was, which is like twice as long, was Kill Bill and, Volume 1 in and 2003. He was working on Inglorious Bastards for a lot of that time. It just took him a long time. But he got, not sort of sidetracked, but it was kind of like that sort of took over. Well, you know, it was the, yeah, the script took him a long time, yeah. But okay. the Kill Bill movies are really interesting. Sam, if you remember, we actually yeah. saw them in the theater. Yeah. And yeah. it's also interesting just because, you know, obviously... It's another sort of like he just jumps together so many people. You know, he brings vacuum with him and he throws Samuel L. Jackson in a really small role. You know, he has Michael Madsen playing a pretty significant character. Where was Samuel L. Jackson? He just what, he played the, the the reverend. He basically had like one speaking line. It was like it was it was just a small cameo. You know, it's sort of like you know the best. You know, David Carradine doing a really great job. You know, he always says Michael. I think that's when he started doing Michael Parks, right? He's he's all about Michael Parks. Yeah, that's right. He, he had not done him, Michael Parks before that. Yeah. Uh, but he's been doing him ever since. Yeah, uh, he wasn't. No, I did... do. I do remember when Kill Bill came out, and like like Benji was saying, how they were advertising it as like Quentin Tarantino's fourth movie, and I remember being surprised that Tarantino hadn't made more movies. Um, because, like, obviously he was a very famous filmmaker, and, you know, I'd seen a few of his movies, but, like, I don't know, I just sort of, like, assumed that, like, <laughs> he was busier somehow. Um, mm-hmm. but it was, there was a big gap. There was a big gap between, between Jackie Brown and, and, uh, Kill Bill. And, right. uh, it's sort of like, people just were like, oh, sure, Quentin Tarantino, he's a great filmmaker, even though he's only ever made three movies. So, it's really interesting, because originally he had planned to try to release it as one four-hour movie, and (laughs) as you might imagine, that didn't play. That didn't play. But the Kill Bill... It's interesting, because the two movies have different feels to them. No, they totally do. I mean, you know, you start with sort of basically like revenge fantasy that moves into sort of samurai revenge fantasy right with the anime thing yeah all the anime yeah. stuff you know, sort of you know put in there which that's what sort of fits in with the sort of the the japan vibe and the next one right. just like totally goes in a different direction it has it's you know it goes back to sort of the generic revenge stuff you know like you know a little bit of western, western. but then, then it just yeah. tosses in this extended kung fu <laughs> side oh plot uh, that like, is just like, amazing like, and Paimei, yeah, one of the best I, I, characters of film. Well, yeah. we, should, you know, we should get Just back amazing. to Kill Bill Volume 1 at one point, but I gotta say, I mean, no matter what, I, I like Kill Bill Volume 2 the most, and one of the big reasons, definitely, is just that Paimei sequence. The Paimei chapter is so incredible. Like, I can watch it a million times. It is so well done. Like, yeah. The whole training thing. Gordon, so good Paimei, Gordon yeah. Liu, who plays uh Paimei, and he also plays Johnny Mo, the head of uh Oranichi's army in the first one. Right. Uh who when I've rewatched Kill Bill Volume One, I'm always like, Yeah, he's the coolest one of the group. But he he's just so great the way he <laughs> the way he does like the mustache, it's just really good. But getting back to uh yeah. the volume one, uh, you know, I actually really liked, you know, the guy who plays Hatori Hanzo, who you know, Sonny yeah, Chiba because yeah. he does like yeah. Oh, for those regarding his warriors, like this, like, he has like the kind of, um, his voice is like, it sounds like a narrator. It's like the, right. <laughs> well, he really, he really exaggerated. I mean, of course I mean, he did, I, but still. It's, it's the thing. Actually, I think, I think even in the time when the, when the, when the uh, Yakuza, 
we're also talking their meeting. Like I think Tarantino did like actually ask them to really exaggerate the Japanese accents, like like more so. But especially, and, and they weren't caricatures, but 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 like uh, Hattori Hanzo was great. He's like, oh, do, oh, you know, <laughs> just like right. He's like in Japanese things, but it was, but but uh, yeah, he was definitely awesome. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing about Kill Volume One is when we were when we were um. I think Sam, you were talking about before, or maybe Jeremy, you were talking about before about like making you care about these different characters. Right. It's weird right. he dedicated that entire chapter, like like a good twenty to twenty five minute chunk of the movie, into Oren Ishii's story. And it's weird because I keep thinking, why did he do that? It works because you know you're going to kill her off, and she's someone who needs to die. But why do that? And I'm mm-hmm. like, like, why? Like, what do you, what do you like? I don't know. What do you guys think? Why oh, are you asking me? I just remember. Oh. I remember when I was okay. watching the movie, they're, they're, all of a sudden it like changes into this anime, and like you're watching this anime, and like my experience watching it was almost that like I got so caught up in that that I forgot yeah. that I if I forgot the whole rest of the movie, I forgot that I was watching something that wasn't. I was just like, oh, this is like so intense and cool, and then like it goes back, like at the end, it goes back from the animated part to the live action, and I was like, oh right, that's the movie I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> it well, completely took over my brain. Let yeah, me yeah, no. let me give you my feeling on why he does it the way he does because you could look at it in different ways. You could do it as the what I would call the unkind interpretation, which a lot of people give of Tarantino, which is he's not an original filmmaker. He just throws together a bunch of stuff he likes, oh, but he's shut he, up. hold on, yeah, but because he's like a savant, no, 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 I, I know. Yeah. that it just somehow comes out looking cool. But that's all it is. There's no substance. Now, I think that's nonsense. I think he's a genius when it comes to film composition, and he very carefully thinks about how everything is going to look. And the fact that he picked this anime thing is no accident. And the way it was even more extreme in terms of the violence was also no accident. Because I think that what you're trying to do in a situation like this is to show what's happening with the different characters. Because remember, how does it start? It starts with her already having killed some people, right? Remember, the movie sort of starts, as we might say, in medias res, in a sense. Like, she's already, ha- she's already killed people. You know, it's, a, it, it's another playing around with, with time stuff, you know. So, she goes to Vernita Green, which is another great name. And they, try to, they play up this, hey, look, she's got a daughter. And it's sort of like, it's very quick shorthand, but it's trying to present the the shades of gray. Well, first of all, we only know that she did something bad because of the limited flashbacks and because Uma Thurman is our main character. But why else? You know, we don't really understand why they took revenge on her. They just, we don't, we know she's looking for revenge and we're caught up in her revenge well, fantasy. Yeah, like, all I'm saying is, like, what it's yeah. doing is, it's switching you to a different character's perspective. And by switching the genre of film and the aesthetic so quickly like that, by giving you the anime, it's like a shock. Like you were saying, you get shocked into a different style. So suddenly, it's like you're watching a different movie. So when you get back into the other one, you're like, well, wait a minute. She's now she's like an intruder into this, situ- into my, into this story. Uh-huh. You know, and... That way, when you actually get to the point where they're fighting, the stakes matter because you're like, well, I kind of want this person to win, but you would feel cheated if it was just like a simple thing, or if it was painted 
as like, oh, she's just a horrible person. Right, right, right. So you mean she's saying adding the complexity really draws you in, you know, that there's right. something real behind it? Yeah, yeah. And, and also the whole idea is that like when you're killing someone, you're killing a person. You're not just you're not just wiping out some evil. Right. Well, yeah. the, the second movie deals with this in some other ways. You know, for example, when she discovers she's pregnant, that's how she was able to convince the other assassin not to try to kill her, basically. Because now it's suddenly like, things have changed. Now I have a future that's not just killing people, it's life, in a sense. You know, it's the change. You know, that, you know, it's... Who finds out she's pregnant? What? Uma Thurman's character. You know, the bride, Beatrix Kiddo. Right. Uh, Now, another, you know, if, if you think about the other characters in there, you know, obviously Bill has his sort of issues. You know, but he's played by David Carradine in such a sort of way, and he uses these pop cultural references that I think, I think it's a little bit of trolling by Tarantino to try to trick us into thinking that's what he really thinks. Remember what what he says about Superman, you know, about how Superman is really, you know, Clark Kent is his making fun of humans. Mm-hmm. But, I, I don't remember that, but. Remember, he, he, says sa- it, he says it towards the end of the movie. To, yeah, he to, says, to you know, Superman, you know, Clark Kent is his vision of humans. Uh, you know, that's why he dresses, you know, he's a, an oaf. But when you, we think about it, yeah, okay, there is an aspect of that. Uh, there is an aspect of that that's sort of like, uh, I think there's an aspect of that which is sort of, you know, it, Maybe you could connect it to specifically Christopher Reeve's portrayal, which is a movie-based thing. But I think that there's no way that Tarantino Wait, doesn't... You, sorry, 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 sorry. Can, can you view yourself? I think there's an aspect of that, because you put out... We're talking about the Superman perspective and this interpretation. Right. And a lot of people you know, point to that as saying, this is necessarily what Tarantino thinks. But unlike, say, Aaron Sorkin, not all of his characters are necessarily mouthpieces for Tarantino. Unless it actually is Tarantino. I'm just saying, he's giving an opinion. That doesn't mean we have to take what he's saying is true. So I'm saying Bill has a very specific perspective on things. He has a very, I would say, grim view of humanity. So his interpretation of Superman validates his own beliefs, his own philosophy. That's why he interprets it the way he does. So when you look at the other characters, you also have more terrible people. Daryl Hannah plays this character sort of like the opposite Uma Thurman. You know, she's also blonde, but she was disrespectful. You know, it's sort of like, it's, obviously there's an aspect of the blindness, which is also symbolic, and there's also a huge-ass metaphor there. You know, but, you know, Michael Madsen actually is given, like, a real bit of pathos. You know, he's, like, conflicted in, in a lot of ways. And the fact that he is conflicted is the only reason that he gets closer to hurting her than anyone else does. Right. Again, these are my interpretations. So no, I think it, I think I can't really. Uh, point. Uh, I don't think he's ever said exactly what he means about some of these things, but you know that's my feeling. And I really like the movie a lot. You know, I think we can all agree that it has the two movies together, just amazing soundtrack. A collection of yeah. just awesome, awesome pieces of music. And yeah. things you yeah. wouldn't necessarily expect, just as per usual. 
And it just works really well, you know, considering how long the movie is. You know, he had this, like, specific, supposedly he has a cut that he was going to plan to put on a DVD or a Blu-ray or whatever, but then it was delayed, and who knows? It's called The Whole Bloody Affair. And I keep hearing rumors every every few years, there's another rumor, like, now he's going to release it. No, no, now he's going to release it. So we'll see. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, so, uh, I guess a little bit of a word about that. My interpretation with the movies is, and I've even heard Tarantino talk about it in terms of the, the you know the whole female empowerment thing. I think part of it too, when I'm looking at it now, is I think a big thing in the movie, like one of the big themes, is like you know male control over female and like then female empowerment. Because part of the big thing is that all the girls are kind of fighting for Bill's attention. Like he says, he loves. He says like I love you to all of them. He's very fatherly and also kind of boyfriendy mm-hmm. you know to to them the way he talks it's like you're my little angel or whatever and they and they and they and they 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 respond to it and i think it's a big thing you know that like even in the beginning um when um when uh i think it was vivica a fox or someone yes um, uh, uh you know the first woman fights with uh with, with thurman uh, with beatrix like she says i was supposed to be black mama and all that like so the infighting and she's kind of risen above it and it's kind of this interesting thing because you know she's the one who had the baby so that can make them all jealous and maybe you know the thing is bill was like the most into her clearly maybe because she had the more than independent spirit also you think of pai Mei, he's he's pai Mei is very sexist and and um and uh what, what's the misogynistic and all that stuff mm-hmm. but she can overcome all, all that, and one, of the, and that's part of the thing too. Part of her training, she can over overcome all these different things. You know, she was raped when she was in, you know, at, in the hospital bed. But then, but you know, she overcame that whole sort of thing. She she drove the pussy wagon. She like go um, mm-hmm. the 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 whole thing with um with uh you can even say with L killing Mei, She doesn't kill him in like really a, a proper way, but but uh but Beatrix rises above it when when uh. When Michael Madsen like buries buries her, you know, buries uh, Uma Thurman, you know, he says all of these like uh, you know the degrading comments, her, and he literally buries her, and she rises back from it, you know, that that whole thing, and then she gets her daughter back from someone who's supposed to be like the ultimate like father, father, husband, whatever figure to her teacher figure. So it's definitely got that whole like empowerment thing going on with it, and she doesn't only get her revenge, she like gets her daughter back. You know what I mean? So that's that's the way I look at it. Right. So I think I think you have a, a point with that. I it's sort of interesting because when you have you know the start of this movie, you're like it's really hard to say where it's gonna go. And in the end, it's sort of making the implication of was this really the best ending? <laughs> that and uh, I, that's one of the things I still like about the movie is that everything's so complex mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, he totally has basically said I wonder if I'll, one day I'll make a sequel, like in twenty years, and just have the daughters fight each other. Well, no, that that, that was a thing. Remember, she, they, he's in set. She, they even set that up at the beginning of the movie when, like, when like Weatherman says to Vivica a. Fox's daughter, like, like you can, like, uh, in twenty years, you're still feeling that rage. You know, I'll be waiting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's like giving her that. That's the whole thing. She's he, she's giving her that. Like, I understand. Yeah, you it's can do so- this if you want. It's sort of like how, you know, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I mean, you guys uh, you guys have seen The Professional, right? You know, right? So, it's one of those, like, well, people sort of want a sequel, but is it ever going to happen? I don't know. 
All right, so let's move on to the to the next one, uh, which was called Death Proof. And have you guys actually seen Death Proof? No, uh, I have not. Not seen Death Proof. So I I watched it, but I wasn't really a fan. Uh, it's sort of based on these sort of what they call the, these grindhouse ideas, right? And they're not the most interesting to me. Unfortunately, it's sort of just—it's uh, not really something that I think will play well with people who aren't like obsessive, crazy movie people like that. You know, Death Proof came out in two thousand seven. It was part of a sort of a double feature thing that he did with Robert Rodriguez, you know, and he, uh, who did Planet Terror. And he sort of, they did it in the style of these old exploitation movies. But the problem with the exploitation movies is they're kind of, they're all bad movies, sort of by definition. And this... Yeah, but he loves them. I know, but this was too close to that from my perspective. I was just bored. I found them dull without anything interesting going on. So I feel like that you know, it was like the one weird, like, oh, he just couldn't help himself. But yeah, that's, that's kind of what, the, what those movies were supposed to be. They're like very indulgent. They're not intended for like a mainstream audience. It's just like Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez saying, these are the kind of movies that we love and yeah. we're, not, we're not apologizing for it. Like, yeah, we're just gonna yeah. make them, which you know, which is cool. Like, I, I think like, I think they've earned that, but 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 yeah, yeah. I, I everyone not, earns maybe one. Maybe one day I'll watch. You know. I, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's move on to his next one, which was in two thousand nine, and it was called *Inglorious Bastards*. And right. you know, it's interesting because you know, in the movie he has the character basically look at the camera and say, "I think this was my masterpiece." You know, so it's sort of like, <laughs> hmm. Gee, I wonder if you're trying to say something. Right. Yeah. You know, and now, would you say it's one of Mike Myers' best performances? Yeah, I think you probably could. To the point. Beat Austin Powers. I said one of his best. One of his best. Mike Myers. I don't know. It's it's he's a pretty big caricature, but like a lot of the characters in the movie are caricatures. Right. Well, there's. He's still great in the movie. I still, I still, I still enjoy him in in the movie. I mean, Michael Fassbender is always really incredible. This was before you know, he blew up. I mean, this this is a yeah, great yeah, example yeah. of Quentin Tarantino finding people who are going to be huge. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think, you know, it's, a, it's interesting just, you know, who you pick and so on. I mean, obviously his character has certain depths that I thought were pretty great. You know, obviously Christoph Faust had such a weird... His character was such a, you know, Hans Lande. There's a reason he won an Academy Award because that character was such, like, crazy yeah. depth. Yeah. So complex yeah. that it was just such a brilliant portrayal. I mean, of course, that was the case of where, you know, you had Heath Ledger winning the year before. So it was like two villains in a row. It was kind yeah, of you know, yeah, sort of an interesting yeah. thing. But actually, I also I mean, thought, you know, Shoshana, you know, played by Melanie Laurent, was also a really great character. And I wouldn't call yeah. her a caricature at all. No, and no, she was also she was very unusual for a Tarantino character in that you know she like you said she wasn't a caricature she was like a regular person you know who was in this like extraordinary circumstance 
Yeah, she yeah. turned she's herself like, she's like basically into, a you know yeah. like I, I don't mean anything offensive by this, but she was like a weak, vulnerable person. You know, mm-hmm. not a person who's like in power, not a person who's confident. You know, and no, she's no, no, just no, no, like, no. That's not true. That that's not totally true. I mean, you're right. You're right to a degree. But the whole point I think about her, which I think is interesting. Yes, she is like a regular character, but she like keeps it together. But the whole thing is, she's got this big. No, she absolutely does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a she, you know, family getting killed by Nazis and, mm-hmm. and right. that whole, whole thing. And then she puts together a. I mean, we don't know how she puts together a theater and that whole thing. So she's very strong herself. She's, it's part of her. But she's, you know, she's, no, she definitely ha- has a lot of strength. Mm-hmm. But it's not the kind of strength which is typical for a, a Tarantino character. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a it's yeah, a different yeah. kind of strength, and it's much more subtle. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. there's so many things going on. I mean, obviously, you know, you have the the weird little things like Eli Roth. You know the you know the torture porn director being the director of the short thing that they show as the Nazi movie. You know mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a that's a very interesting thing. The fact that basically movies are responsible Eli for Roth, Eli Roth being Jewish. Also. Well, he was very. <laughs> Let's not forget that. There's a lot of verisimilitude in it. I mean, you know, uh, Emilie Laurent is actually a French Jewish actress. You know, all of the people who played Jews were Jews, etc. You know, Diane Kruger is actually, you know, she is from Germany. So it's like, it's really interesting. You know, there's so much, there's so many subtitles. So, yeah. And I mean, it's just like, it's, it's shot like also like everything is shot like beautifully in that movie. Just like, so it's like this like romantic thing, even though it's like also really gritty and like, you know, Brad Pitt is also great. And even oh, moments are really like, when, you, like, when, when, like, when like they speak in Italian. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Ball, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Germans can't can can tell what a don't, don't really uh, understand Italian accents. So it's all the same to them. And you're, and you're thinking in your head like, no, that can't be true. And they're like, Buongiorno. Yeah, no. that was that was the best line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, Arriva Derche, Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing, like, there are also mm-hmm. so many themes to unpack because it's kind of like I look at it from a mm-hmm. few angles. So first of all, there's like this theme of like intrusion, which obviously has to do with like you know invasion and the Holocaust and things like that. You know, Hans Landa is like really intrusive to everyone, and he makes puts everyone on edge. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And the only person who really passes the test is, is that is that is the, the girl, the Jewish girl. But he intrudes on everyone. It's kind of that German thing, um, you know, or at least the, the conquest thing. You know, there's a whole thing about the, uh, the the war hero. You know, he's intrusive too. He just keeps 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 pushing. You know what I mean? And then I was thinking of the idea of like, I, I when I watched it most recently, thinking about well, like what is maybe Tarantino trying to say about why certain people succeeded or didn't succeed in the war? And like I was thinking, this is one interpretation. I'm not I'm not married to it, but I'm thinking, what what are his thoughts about it? I thought one possibility is that is that the thing about the Germans and it's also reflected in their film is the Germans, one of the reasons why they fail at things or whatever is, is besides the fact of being really orderly, they're into these big grand allu- allu- like illusions, these big, these big notions of things. They want to make it really grand and they want to fulfill these fantasies and also, first of all, not even care what happens to other people. You know, they want to fulfill these, these things that aren't, uh, that aren't real and just fill their fantasies and, 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 and harm a lot of people in the way. The thing about the British is that the, the British, like, they have these protocols and they think, and protocols and they focus also on culture. And if you think about 
you know, the mission that they had, the whole point was they're going to ingratiate themselves and that's the plan and they're going to be dignified and just become acculturated and it's all right. planned out, but that doesn't right. work well. But the American thing is that, is that they're ready to just be wild at a moment's notice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The whole, the whole, um, um, fuck, why am I forgetting his name? What's Brad Pitt's uh, character's name again? Lieutenant Aldo Reigns. Yeah, Aldo yeah. Reigns. Like, he's kind of this wild guy. Like, he thinks about things through and everything like that, but he's kind of in the moment. He kind of just like, you know, just is kind of right, like, but his, um, like his mission, as he says, is killing Nazis. Nazis, you know, yeah, like, killing Nazis. Like it's, it's this wild like, thing. Like, it's wild just thing. like I'm gonna just like go create chaos and fear yeah. and and you know like just just undermine that whole like arrogant you know Nazi yeah. confidence, yeah. you know, and but like like literally like terrorize them, you know, commit acts yeah. of terror against them. Right. And he's and he's like doing this whole thing, you know, and and it's just being this like reckless cowboy, and then throwing the Apache thing in there. What is interesting is that is that he's all about making deals, and you got to see it through that. Even the last one, and it's like you see, it's great because you see his you see his like ears prick up when Hans Landa says it, like towards the end, like I'm going to make a deal. And he's like, oh, I like deals, you know, and that. And he remember he says he's part Apache, so it's kind of also throwing the Native American thing in mm-hmm. there, which you can also unpack as well of just. You know that's part of the American way of life, and and and, and once again, like right. he's all about just making these deals, these in the moment things of, of what's right. going on there. Trying to be the so, real, like the original American in a sense, but also right. the he's both original American and repudiation of white privilege and white guilt and white superiority. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so but I mean, just, yes, I mean Benji, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense, and I think it's definitely intentional. You know, that, and like, you know, when people say things like the movie presents sort of like caricatures of each nation, like, that's, that's part of what they're getting at, is this idea of like, you know, each, each, each sort of nationality in that movie is acting on like sort of like what they think is like, this is how the world works. This is how we, this is like the most effective way to do things. They're all very different. Let me, um, so I, I think you're definitely onto something with right. that. Well, let me give you another thing, which is, you know, it's interesting. We've talked about how, you know, he loves to put these little pop cultural asides. Now, there isn't an obvious one of that here, but there is one that is very significant, which is when they're playing the celebrity guessing game, you know, where they hold up the name of, a, of something. Yeah. And it's not a coincidence that there's these Hollywood icons that even in Germany have become significant. The truth is, the original German film was revolutionary for what it did for film. So it sort of... It, Glorious Bastards? No, no. I'm talking about really early film, like Metropolis. You know, were, these were things that were like... They were revolutionary for their time. They basically helped pave the way for other kinds of, you know, more advanced... You know, other kinds of films, basically. You know, it's the kind of thing like, you know... Well, you can't, you can't really talk about, like, German films and Nazi, Nazi films... And like how they influence other films without talking about Lenny Reifenstahl. Well, that was later, but yes, that's part of it. But I'm even saying this is part of the perversion of German film. And I, if you don't think that Tarantino is also making a point about that, I think you're not also a little bit missing something. Because, you know, Fritz Lang was only like 20 years earlier. And yeah. it's showing like, look, it came from the point of, of doing this amazing thing of German expressionism paving the way for movies as we know it, to, you know, triumph of the will type thing. And, you know, what does he do? He shows literally that movies end World War II 
because everyone burns to death because of film. And, you know, you see so the... Jewish yeah. film. Okay. Like, she says that at the end, like, she's like, this is the face of Jewish vengeance, and there's a shot. Gee, the I, w- I wonder and if... It's <laughs> yeah. The is, is burning. It's like, okay. That's like, right. It's the it's Jewish like, Hollywood has, kind of the has defeated, yeah, too, right? Exactly, right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. We, we, need to, we need to talk about the ending. <laughs> okay. We need to talk about the ending, because, like, the whole movie, as I was watching it, I was thinking, okay, this is just, like, this is, like, historical fiction... But, but, like, in line with, you know, the actual history. Like, they, they don't actually do anything throughout the movie that makes it obvious that, like, this, some, this, is, this is something that, like, couldn't possibly have happened, right? But then, in the end, there's, like, this radical departure, and it becomes this sort of, like, historical fantasy. Oh, yeah. You know, of, like, this is, this is how it should have ended. I think that's what, like, one of my friends, um, you know, when I was speaking to him about, about the movie, and he said, like, that was, like, his... Um, his, his like grandparents' response or something, you know, like like basically the idea that like this movie becomes it goes from being just like a crazy wish fulfillment movie about you know the war to a wish fulfillment movie about like the Nazis and like Hitler and like you know the whole you know like like the wish fulfillment goes from being like just like. Um, you know, like, oh, it would be cool if there were Jews who, like, were getting revenge on Nazis to, like, what if the entire Nazi command structure was just murdered all in one night yeah, by a bunch by of Jews? Jewish like, it's like, so, so my question is, <laughs> right, my question is, like, yeah. what does it mean? Like, you were starting to get at that when you were talking about Hollywood and movies mm-hmm. and stuff, but, like, what was Tarantino trying to say by having yeah, the ending anyway. of his movie be this, like, this, this radical sort of, like, wishful fulfillment um, oh, you know, like I can history. I can answer that for you. Hold on, I know I have the answer. I want to say I want to say my thing. I want to say my thing. All right, all right. because <laughs> I was thinking about about it uh, before um, when I was watching it. It's assen- I think essentially it's saying the whole thing of like, look, these are the ones who, who did win, and I I I'm I'm really not just saying this because I'm Jewish and, and shit. I think I think because because in Django Unchained, which we'll get to, like he's really into the, like that whole thing of like you know empowering. Anyway, I'll get to my point. But uh, literally, he's showing like this is literally what did happen. Even for everyone's efforts, the the like the, the whole thing is like you know trying to prevent Jews from succeeding and controlling culture or being part of culture or being leaders in culture or things like that. Um, in 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 actuality, what ends up happening is the opposite of what the Nazis wanted, which is this creation of Hollywood, this whole thing that affected the entire world. And pushed and, and pushed uh, culture, whatever. Or at least there's this success mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. you know, of of Jews uh, of Jews actually. Then afterwards, you know, in their revenge, so to speak, is that they got in control of of film, the message, and, and of yeah, you know, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Jeremy, what's your thing? On, I know that was rude. But, uh, well, yeah. I think this part of it is you also look at what happens, like in the movie. Basically, I was watching uh, with. Daniel and we were getting to the point where he's like, "Well, wait a minute, but they can't kill Hitler, yeah, right?" And I, I just didn't say anything. And then, like, like five seconds later, oh, I guess they did kill him. And yeah. what does this say? Well, I think it is saying something about what he believes about movies, which is that they can influence and change reality. They that. And the lessons that you learn from movies are more than just propaganda. 
they tell people and they teach people about life and history for good or for bad. You tell people, you know, people get their ideas about life from movies. You know, people think, you know, of all sorts of things about cultures all over the world because of what they see in movies. People have certain th- feelings like, this is what Kazakhstan like because of Borat. You know, when in reality, in some ways, it's worse. You know, maybe it's not as, like, backwards in some ways, but it's, you know, maybe it's not great either. On the other hand, it's the positive side also that cinema can change reality. You know, cinema can, uh, you know, movies can change things. And I think that's part of it. You know, look, we're changing things. This is how it should have happened. And this is how we'd prefer to remember it. And, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, look at the final stuff that happened. He carves the you know, swastika into this guy's forehead as, look, even with all that, you have to remember the reality. You know, the mm-hmm. scar is going to brand you because we can't forget these lessons either. And right. you know, it's the, like for, forever the, the image is tarnished because the whole thing is he's walking around with that on his head. Right. So it's like you could say they're always carrying it around. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not personally a person who's like who's like really anti-German or whatever. Like I don't I, I don't subscribe to, to to that notion or anything like that. But there but there is still the reality of like you know there is still this kind of like um, you know black mark on on Germany. Because of that, and it affects. It's interesting because it's like if you, um, you know, it it affects people around our age or younger or whatever in in, in Germany who had no connection to the Holocaust and who hate Nazis and all this uh, and, and and all this stuff. And and one thing that's a big deal to them is that they still have this history, you know, this like black mark in their history that affects them to this day. So there's still that that branding and that association, and you know maybe that'll eventually yeah. go away as history moves on. So but, I, but it is a real thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I, Benji, I really like what you were saying that this idea of like you know um, the ending of of Inglorious Bastards is really like sort of that's that was how history turned out. You know, like the Jews did become you know instead of being stamped out by the Nazis, they did end up you know sort of coming into a position of power in America and Hollywood, you know, being able to make movies and whereas the Nazis were all killed. I do, I, I like that idea. I think it, it, you know, it does make a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of like the whole, like the idea of like, you know, you can, you know, not Germany can't escape the, the stain of the Nazis. Like, I think that, I mean, like I, I can't speak from personal experience, but my impression is that like Germans are very, very much obsessed with the Holocaust and like, you know, and it's like, it's not just like this national shame, but it's like, it's something that they, you know, it's sort of like a huge part of their identity yeah. is like, we are the people who did this. And therefore, we are the ones who are responsible for ourselves to make sure that like, you know, we don't allow things like this to happen in our country like, mm-hmm. ever again. Yeah, they're, they're super anti, like the anti-Nazi legislation in Germany is like, is, is huge like like you're not you're it's illegal to play any like messages like any like speeches of hitler um a swastika is an illegal symbol like it's it's very it's right like, but it's i mean it's not just about like 
banning symbols. It's you know, it's about like this is what we focus on when we teach in school. You know, like this is our legacy. This is what you know. This is this is where we come from. You know, mm-hmm. like like this well, is what kinda, we have to be conscious of at all times. It's it's really interesting because I remember um, uh, one one a few years ago, one German guy I became friends with. Uh, it was in San Francisco, and he's a great guy. And like and and we ended up just talking about just. Nazi stuff and, and, and Holocaust stuff. And, and it's very interesting because, and, and this doesn't reveal anything I think bad about him because he was saying in a very measured way and, and it was part of the context of the conversation. And he was saying like, you know, we do hear this a lot though, though I think it's time like as a country, like for us to like move, like past some of these conversations to look to, to uh, you know, to move forward and whatever. And some people would find that offensive. I actually see a parallel with, you know, when we grew up, we, especially because we went to Jewish schools, we are always told about the Holocaust. And there are plenty of people around our age who are also like, okay, like, we get it. Do we have to keep harping on this? And that can go to a, a larger conversation of, like, Jews abroad and everything like that. But I think, I think that's an interesting parallel going on, going on too, because there's kind of this, this interesting thing about, like, the, 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 um, the, the black mark on history and the never again thing. And, and that interesting, like, you know, interplay with with the Nazis and the Jews, and that's I, I guess sort of played out in the movie. I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it. You, I what I think it actually you you can sort of extrapolate it to like you know in an American culture now. I'm I warn you, I'm about to get political. I'm not going to get severely political, yeah. but just like the whole idea that like a lot of people in America want to believe that we live in like a post-racial society. And that like racism right. is a problem that we've solved and it's no longer an issue. And all the people who believe that, by the way, are white. Um, but but like mm-hmm. it's like people mm-hmm. want to people want to move racist, on to racism. Sam. Like, do we still have to talk? <laughs> Did Obama tell you to say that, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> so no, but okay. I'm saying like like there's a lot of people who want to like move on from like slavery and racism and mm-hmm. discrimination and like civil yeah. rights, like you know, and like no, like. We, we're not supposed to move on. We have to be aware of it because it's still yeah, an yeah. issue, you know? And, like, in, I feel like in Germany, my sense of it is that, like, they, there isn't this same pressure, like, oh, we have to move on from the Holocaust. No, like, they, right. they accept that, like, this is something that we have to keep at the forefront because it's important, mm-hmm. because it's us, because we did this, mm-hmm. and, like, we could do it again, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, uh, I, I think, I think, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, so just, I mean, that was, that was basically it. But, like, in terms of specifically with, with us, with, you know, as Jews, whether we're, you know, we need to move on from the Holocaust, like, you know, I, I myself am guilty of, of, like, having that opinion at times, saying, like, you know, maybe we focus too much on the Holocaust and we, we need to move on. Also because, but, like, it's different, it's different, yeah, it's like, different when you are the victim Versus being the mm-hmm. perpetrator. When you're the victim, it, you can decide when you want to move on. When you're the perpetrator, like you don't get to just decide, okay, I'm moving on now. Like that's right. that's not exactly. up to you. Right, right, and that's the big thing about. I mean, that's what you hear from. I mean, obviously not the only group. That's what you hear with a lot of like you know African American activism and things like that. The point is, like you know, I think anyone can reasonably make an argument that yes, it's true in your life. In order to have a fulfilling life, it is important to get past things. But the problem is, is that when you're in the position to say to people, if you were part of, let's say, the oppressor group in a certain sense, and then you're saying to people, get past it, 
people are going to have a natural reaction of like, what do you mean get past it? This is such a, this is such a huge thing. It, you know, it could be compared to like, to like, you know, a parent who, who abused a child or something like that. Not saying that, you know, black people are children or whatever, but like, but saying just like, it's akin to saying like, you know, a parent like abused a child and then it had stopped happening for a while. And then, and then the child brings it up and the parent says, oh, what do you, I think this sort of thing does actually sometimes happen, but like, like, oh, why don't you just move past it? We're past that. Everything that's like, no, like you, you did this whole thing. You know what I mean? And I think, I think that's kind of the sentiment a lot of times. Maybe, you know, like maybe I'm not getting some nuances to it, but, um, that's, that's, I guess, kind of the, the feeling, mm-hmm. um, of, so yeah, I guess we, uh, we went to a little bit. Of yeah, but that brings us, here. uh, that brings us very neatly into a discussion of Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. So, Jake yep. O'Chain, of course, brings back Christoph Waltz, you know, obviously. Awesomely. And, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, you played a villain in the last one. What if you did the exact opposite? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and he was so like, awesome as a good guy, too. What if you played yeah. a character who was, like, just as crazy, but, like, in a good way? <laughs> Basically, I think that's that's kind of, like, where he was going. That's right. So, it's really interesting because you have i would say i would say the movie is not as good as inglorious bastards but it is definitely a very enjoyable film to watch and it was, i think it was amazing it was i awesome. think I samuel jackson gives one of the best performances ever uh, oh, as I, well i will go on record as saying i believe that samuel jackson's performance in it in Django Unchained was the best that I've ever seen him in any movie. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Even better than Jurassic Park. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Hold on to your butts, everybody. I mean, he's he's been in a lot of movies, and he's a very good actor. Some movies he doesn't act well, but like, you know, but he's been in a lot of movies, and he's a lot of them he's acted well, but like, he was brilliant. He was just so good. Yeah, people Django say uh, he should have won that year. But, uh, yeah. yeah, couldn't yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nope. No, he was... You, definitely incredible in that. Sorry, so what were you saying about Django Unchained, Jeremy? So, it's interesting because, you know, obviously there's another aspect of, you know, wish fulfillment, of revenge fantasy. You know, these are all things that have come up in all of his movies in different ways. You know, it's the, this is the kind of thing that should have happened. You know, but it's also, it's weird in that, you know, you're like, yeah, look, but okay. But it's not. It's not just a revenge fantasy, right? Well, because... No. It's like, not. his other revenge fantasies are purely about revenge, and they're, like, pretty much, like, nihilistic otherwise, you know. But, like, this is a, this is a rescue and revenge right. fantasy. But right. the other thing right. that's there's happening... Like, there's, there's actually, like, well, a positive purpose to it beyond mm-hmm. just revenge. Well, if you unpack all the little things, you know, it's sort of like, well, look, you know, America was sort of, like, sick, you could say. And it's almost, it's funny because you could say, look, you know, this European guy, you know, yeah, you can look at what happened later but with the Germans, but at this point, they were actually more civilized than these Americans. Right. Which is sort of like... To slavery, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the interesting thing about history, you mm-hmm. know, with America being one of the last countries to, to outlaw slavery and all that, so, yeah. Yeah, so Sorry, go ahead. it's one of these things where you're like, okay, well, what are you, what are you trying to say? How well do you say it? You know, because then you have to put in like, well, some people will say, well, twelve years of slave is more meaningful. You know, a, you know, movie. Of course, twelve years of slave based off of a true story. 
but it's a different kind of thing altogether. You know, and this one is both trying to paint things realistically and also stylistically. You know, it's not trying to, you know, it mixes that stuff up, you know, because it's paint, you know, it mixes Western stuff with this kind of, you know, Civil War environment, which is a kind of a weird thing in some ways, even though it makes sense, obviously, that it would make, you know, be happening contemporary at the same time. But you don't really see that kind of connection. It's like, hey, let's let's just take the old West and shove it into like these plantations, you know, out the old south. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. not like people weren't racist in the West because obviously they were, but the, they didn't have or the, the power. They didn't have the power structures for this kind of, or even or the population really for that kind of thing for that kind of, you know degradation and right you know it, i think that there is some truth that some people say well look it's another wish fulfillment thing you know in some sense because sort of like saying you know look who's the last man standing well you know it's the two you know it's these two people you know he picks the the django and you know brumhilda you know brumhild you know, he makes the connections to the, you know, the Siegfried or Siegfried. I'm not really sure the best way to say that. You know, these sort of mm-hmm. epic, ancient German hero things. And it's right. another, you know, it's like, look, this is another little, it's an epic of sorts. He has his own art. Yeah. You know, he starts yeah. as uh, less than human in some ways because that's how he mm-hmm. sees himself because, of, you know, society has told him that. But he needs to see... Oh look, okay, it's not true. You know, none of that is true. It's you know they're forcing me into this position. But by yeah, the end, and, you know, he he does and, and what he just needs. like with, with the glorious bastards. At the end, there's the burning plantation at home. You know what I mean? That they mm-hmm. look at. That's the kind. That's, that's kind of a. That's just kind of the parallel metaphor. Metaphor over there. Yeah, there's all these like um, really interesting relationships. You know, the whole thing I about. I think it's interesting. That he that he had like one of the characters be German, that he was played mm-hmm. by Christoph Waltz, that he had that whole like Broomhilda Siegfried thing, because in a way he's almost like it's almost like he's he's like commenting on Inglorious Bastards and saying like yeah. no, you don't it's like Germans aren't evil. Yes, you know? exactly. Nazis right, right, Nazis right. are evil, right? But like Germans can be like heroic, you know, it's not like he's like, listen, right, guys, right. No, don't, no, don't, don't right. get it wrong. Like, you know, yeah. there's there's also this, like, heroic noble tradition in Germany, you know, that we can take and we can, like, sort of, like, culturally appropriate it, you know, and, like, mm-hmm. apply it to, like, you know, the American Civil War and say, like, you know, this is, like, going to be our inspiration for something which is actually, like, you know, fighting against racism and, and you know, and, and oppression and, and um, mm-hmm. you know, all the things that, that we, like, associate with Nazis. Um, yeah, so it's just, I, I almost feel like he was, you know, that was very, very deliberate that he, that he sort of included all those German themes. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, also, you know, you have, yeah. like, a very interesting relationship between, you know, Candy and, uh, William, you know, between Samuel Jackson and Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, yeah. basically, oh, this is the guy who's really kind of running things. Because he actually, he hates more than anyone else in this movie. And hate is the thing that gives you power in the South. You know, mm-hmm. that 
that's the thing, and that's why the only solution is that everyone has to die for Django to escape because he can't he can't fix things. He can only it's like once you're that enmeshed in that hatred, mm. he's saying the only way that this could happen is you had to have the civil war. Now, I don't know. That's interesting. I didn't think about that, but I think I think I think that may actually have been part of his point. I think that's not not a bad way of looking at it. Yeah, a lot of people say, you know, that the civil war was always going to happen and you know, that was inevitable, basically, because you had these tensions that were building up. You couldn't it couldn't be prevented. Now, I don't know. These are the kinds of things yeah, that people like so to speculate to about. And, you know, maybe if you could have gotten some changes earlier on that maybe something wouldn't have happened that was that bad for the you know, for the country that still leads to problems nowadays too. You know, I mean, I don't know. It's not like there weren't problems later on. I mean, there were a lot of really positive things that came off of this award. Like, for example, you know, it forced certain things to be desegregated, for example, even though some of it was later brought back by racist presidents, you know, like Coolidge. You know, terrible guy. Well, they, they had, but, well, they, had the, uh, they had the KKK in this. That was an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Like, even though it was really before well, the KKK. It was sort of a thing. proto-KKK. Right, exactly. <laughs> You know, exactly. because like the real the real KKK didn't start immediately after the Civil War. The real KKK started some I want to say like around thirty years later. Yeah. Um, well, no Reconstruction. It, it it started happening in Reconstruction because, because there remember, was. No, no, no. Because remember, uh, there's also like a big thing about like all of a sudden there were all these blacks. Like in some places, they outnumbered whites and they had voting power. You know, which a lot right. Of well, didn't. it's not just that they had voting power. They were they were running in elections and winning elections, right? And right, serving right, right. as like you know elected representatives, and that's what sort of kicked off the KKK is is like you know the sort of like renewal of racism in the South of like white people saying we don't want black people in power, we don't want black people in the government, so we're going to you know run this campaign of terror, you know, to scare them away and and you know basically either either get them to stop you know, trying to participate in, you know, in politics or just, like, get them to leave, right? And that's, mm-hmm. but it but it didn't start right after World War II. It started later. You know, that's what, you know, when people talk about, you know, history books are, are you know, they don't portray this period accurately. You know, that's what they, that's what they talk about. Like, you know, the, the period shortly after World War II was actually overall, like, much less racist than what happened, you know, a couple of decades later. Um, you know, in like the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, as that's what Jeremy was saying about, you know, certain, you know, Jim some of the Crow. presidents around that, um, yeah. or, or Woodrow Wilson or whoever, you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, it wasn't just the presidents, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, but that was, but, you know, but that was sort of like, you know, that whole concept, it was almost like, um, uh, like nostalgic, you know, like people were like nostalgic, like, remember that time when like we had slavery Mm-hmm. Like, like black people were, were equal to us. That was so great. Oh, you yeah. know. <laughs> right. Let's yeah. go back to yeah, that. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And that's, that was so, like how the whole cake of So I mean, whatever. That was a very long-winded way of saying that like um, his use of, of like KKK imagery in this movie is anachronistic. Um, although the, you know, the, the kind of specific, you know, lynchings certainly obviously happened. And, you know, the idea yeah. that like a group of people in the South would be very upset by like a black bounty hunter 
you know, executing a bounty on like three white guys, you know, yes, like obviously, yeah, I don't think it was unrealistic. I just think it was sort of like, um, you know, like the, the specific sort of KKK style imagery is like something that, that he wanted to use, but like maybe wasn't like totally historical. That's all. Right. Right. So right. I think we, it's finally time to move on to his final. Wait, 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 wait. I, I would like to say, I would like to say one, one more thing before we, we, we go with that. Okay. Um, I think we should mention just some of the controversy stuff about it because it's interesting that, that, and we can explore this, why Inglorious Bastards didn't get the, the same backlash that, that, that um, Django Unchained did. I mean, there are a few things going on with Django Unchained, which I, which I think are interesting. First of all, just there's the whole like, N-word usage thing going on. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know if Jews would have the equivalent of it or whatever, but, but it's interesting because, oh, sort of. because, because, because he, got a lot of, he got a lot of heat from a lot of people for it. There are people who are fine with it, but that was, that was, a, that was a big thing. The other thing is, it's weird because it's like 12 Years a Slave in a certain way kind of maybe ruined the impact of, of Django Unchained to a certain degree. Because I, I thought 12 Years a Slave was, was fantastic. But it's it was. interesting because 12, Twelve Years a Slave, not only like it, you could say it was more raw and real in a certain way, um, but it was also it was also made from like a black director and a black you know like like and, and like created from that. So mm-hmm. it, like so people can say that it's more authentic and everything like that. And I think there's maybe some truth to it. So it's interesting because the perspective of someone being oppressed as opposed to someone not being a uh, not oppressed but sort of doing the wish fulfillment is like an interesting concept. <sighs> yeah, you know what I mean. Like well, you know. Like, I mean, well, okay, look at... I mean, like, it, it, it's... I, I, I kind of agree with you about, you know, what you're saying about 12 Years a Slave. In some ways, I sort of, like, um, dims the, you know, the the importance of, of Django Unchained, or it sort of, you know, it just takes the shine off a little bit, because 12 Years a Slave was an amazing movie, and in some ways superior yeah. in, its, in its depiction of slavery. But what I'll say in Tarantino's defense is that you could also look at it as Django paved the way a little bit for 12 Years mm-hmm. a Slave, you know, sort of like created, you know, or, or like pushed things more yeah. in the direction of having an atmosphere of like where 12 Years a Slave could be more more accepted. You know, I mean, 12 Years a Slave was not a big movie, like budget-wise, you know, it was, it was like a small sort of like, um, I don't know if was you know technically an indie movie it wasn't, i don't think you would call it indie but it was like small you know and it mm-hmm. probably didn't have a lot well, of it was, money it was behind indie, it but marketing. still yeah but but like the fact that django had come the year before and shown us this like radical you know something that hadn't really been depicted on film you know the kind of like radical like violence you know in regards to slavery and and the treatment of of black people in the South, or you know, just general so far, like something sort of like I think it did have to sort of like prepare people to be open mm-hmm. to the kind of movie that Twelve Years a Slave was. Right. Well, Twelve Years a so, Slave yeah, you know, did have a small budget, about twenty-two million, and, and it made about one hundred and eighty-seven million. Um, whereas Django and Chain cost a hundred million and made four hundred twenty-five million. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's interesting just like as before we, we go on from there is also just like the whole thing also with 12 Years a Slave. Um, I've heard it said this way and it's true. 12 Years a Slave kind of was like, it was like a Holocaust movie for slavery to a certain degree because there have mm-hmm. been so many Holocaust movies, or at least a, a number of them that have gotten that sort of like gritty, like, like, 
like uh, qual like quality to it, like really showing the horror of of things and showing extended pain sequences and and torture sequences. Um, and it's weird because because like you know it, it's an interesting parallel to think about because you know Inglorious Bastards happened and it wasn't that sort of movie. It was more like the uplifting thing. But then here's this new um, here's this new um, I mean not uplifting but but uh, more triumphant at the end. And then there's this new thing, Twelve Years a Slave, that really goes in the direction you know that a lot of earlier like Jewish you know not Jewish movies, but like Holocaust movies were made in. So, I don't know, I think it's an interesting parallel. All right, well, I think it's time to move on to uh, Quentin Tarantino's final movie, which is the movie that hasn't yet come out. It's called The Hateful Eight. And he brings back a few of his classic characters. So, here's what we know. It's a Western film that takes place a little bit after the Civil War. And there's some bounty hunter stuff, etc., and, of course, Samuel Jackson is there. Kurt Russell, who was in Death Proof, is there. Tim Roth, who was in, you know, Reservoir Dogs in Pulp Fiction. Walter Goggins, who was in, let's see, who was in Django Unchained. And Michael Madsen mm -hmm. comes back. Bruce Stern. And then, of course, you have some new people. Channing Tatum. Mm -hmm. Damien Bashir. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. And it's interesting for me because I don't know if you heard about what happened with this movie. Right. So it's interesting because actually there was a leak. His script was leaked somehow. And he thought he'd only given it to a few, you know, like trusted colleagues. But right, some, right. You know, somehow it got out. So he said, I'm not making it. But then he changed his mind and said, all right, you know what? I, I'm going to just write a little bit different, you know, a little bit different ending. And it's going to be a little bit different, you know, maybe two alternate endings, and so it's not going to be clear. He had like a, He's going to have a live reading of the original screenplay, and he's going to film it. You know, we, I've already seen, you know, I already saw a teaser for it, uh, which was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just a teaser. And basically, it's supposed to start filming in January. So it's kind of, I think uh, I think it's pretty cool. You know, I don't know if he's going to have another movie after this. He's talked about that this will be his final movie. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm not really sure what it's going to be about, obviously, because we don't really know. But The Hateful Eight is a cool name. That's certainly true. And, you know, it's nice to see him bringing back these different people. But, of course, we can't really talk about what will really be about until, you know, we see it. So that's still going to be one of those... Uh, right. Who knows at this point? So I think, well, yeah. to wrap it up, I'd just like to say... Have you, Jeremy, have you read any of the scripts? Uh, no, I don't want to. You don't want to? I didn't, okay. yeah. I tried not to look for it. I just read some of the stories that were reporting about it. I don't want to know what happens. So, you know, because part of the fun of watching it is to see how he composes everything together. Anyway, so yeah. to wrap it up, I wanted to say, like, you know, what is your favorite you know, Tarantino movie. Which of these is your favorite? And what do you think is your favorite performance? Like, who's your favorite character? Mm. If, you can, if you can. What do you think? Mm. I think... Um, uh, it, should I go first? I, I, yeah, go ahead. Go if, ahead. You have to, okay. if you have it, go, go ahead. Um, I think my favorite movie is probably Inglorious Bastards. Mm -hmm. 
Although it's, I mean, like they're all they're all good, and it's hard to choose. But in a way, I think Inglorious Bastards is sort of his most mature, mm-hmm. um, and you know, it's sort of like his most serious movie. I mean, I don't know. They're all serious in a way. Like Reservoir Dogs is is a pretty serious movie too, and that was his first one. But um, but but yeah, but but like I think I think Inglorious Bastards is just sort of like it's like the peak of his. You know, it's like there's. You were talking about Pulp Fiction before and how it's like sort of, you know, nothing really is out of place in it and everything comes together. And like, I think that um, Inglorious Bastards also has that sort of just, you know, elegance to it. Um, you know, the performances are amazing. Christoph Waltz is amazing. They're all they're all really good. Um, <laughs> maybe Mike Myers is like a little bit over the top, but uh, <laughs> otherwise, um, otherwise it's 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 pretty fantastic. His um, his parents were in the British, you know, Royal Corps. Really? Yeah, that's why he took the job. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> he um, he he did not personally fight in World War Two. Right. Yes. Yes. No. I. I guess. All right. So um, is and and you're asking like and what's my favorite like performance like my favorite role? Yeah, of it, all of his movies. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be Samuel L. Jackson in in Django Unchained. That's pretty good. And what is your favorite Tarantino performance? <laughs> My favorite Tarantino performance is when he was in Desperado. Um, you know, I forget his character's name, but basically he played, you know, the white guy. Um, and he got killed about five minutes into the movie. Right. Uh... Okay, uh, Ben, do you have an, do you have something in mind? Um, it, it's hard to say. I'd say probably Glorious Bastards might be like his best. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I may have actually liked Django Unchained the most, strangely enough. Interesting. Um, so do you also then, agree then, uh, about Samuel Jackson? Yeah, that's probably his best performance. He was he really was was really good and subtle in Jackie Brown. Um. I will say though my favorite scene of any Quentin anything ever is as that Pyme like the sequence the, the Pyme sequence mm-hmm. was just so incredible. I, I love I, I loved that, and um, I'd say Han not Hans Landa um, Christoph Waltz uh, his performance in Django Unchained. He had certain things he did that I thought were so incredible. Like his one scene, it's so weird how he does it with his face where he where like where like um um. You know, like like he's like debating with uh with with Jamie Fox about about like like something like about him being like a slaver. I I don't remember exactly what it was, mm-hmm. but Jamie Fox brings up something like, "Oh, remember when we were shooting that that guy in front of his kid? Do you remember that?" And Christopher Walsh has a dead face, and then he just suddenly changes, and goes, "Yes, I remember that." And he says this in this like amazing tone. So I I I just I really dug that. Mm-hmm. You know. All right. So, and then Tarantino performance. I mean, there is there is this, like his classic performance in Pulp Fiction, which is which is great. But mm-hmm. I, I like I like how he says in Django Unchained, he's like South African, remember? And he goes like, "Shit it, black!" Like he just says it in this like really South African accent, a really bad accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some people said he's supposed to be Australian. Oh, Australian, whatever. Because well, that's Australian. because the accent was so bad. Crikey, <laughs> crikey, mate! Yeah. Shut it, you. <laughs> Yeah, actually, um, Benji, I just wanted to say I did really like the um, the the Pie May sequence in Kill Bill. Although I think that my favorite sequence from any movie of his is probably 
the the anime sequence from that movie. That's pretty great. From the from the first, it's from the first Kill Bill, right? right? Part one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah that's yeah. correct. But yeah, I, that was just so incredible to me. All right. Well, for anyway, me, just, just a little addition there. I think you have a point, uh, Menge, that I think Inglorious Bastards is his best movie. But in the movie that I have rewatched the most is still going to be Pulp Fiction. Uh, I've seen that many, many times. I've definitely rewatched Probably Kill Bill 1 and 2 mm-hmm. in pieces more. So, like, I've watched, like, the Pi May scene a lot. But the whole movies I haven't seen quite as many times. But I've seen Pulp Fiction, like, the whole thing a lot at this point. And Glorious Bastards is hard to watch in some, you know, a lot of ways. Even though I think it's yeah. an amazing movie, yeah. it's not... In some ways, it's not my favorite just because of that. And in terms of performances, you know, I feel like it's interesting because, you know, you have... It's really interesting when you have something like, say, Harvey Keitel coming in 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 Pulp Fiction, and suddenly it's like, oh, this is like the perfect portrayal of this character. (laughs) Uh, But I would have to say that... I kind of agree. I would have to say, actually, it's uh, Melanie Laurent from Inglorious Bastards, which I know is a little out of the box in some ways, but because of her, she has such a more low-key, you know, character. It's a different thing. Uh, Melanie Laurent, um, from who played Shoshana in Inglorious Bastards, I think, was. Okay. Really good. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, it's not as like, it, it's not as like big as a lot of the other ones. It's not as showy. Uh, it may be, but it's still, it's just as complicated. And it's also I think, difficult. I, I, I think it's legitimate. I think it was pretty awesome. It was yeah. a different thing. It was a different thing than what he's done before. Yeah, and uh, I can tell you my least favorite Tarantino performance since uh, somebody opened uh, the door to other movies would probably be from Little Nicky. Uh, Benji's favorite movie of all time. <laughs> when he plays a blind preacher on the this like wow, I had no idea that he was in Little Nicky. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, when I wrote my uh, you know, f- the the five least offensive thing, you know, <laughs> uh, Adam Sandler movies of all time, uh I was sort of I did a little bit of research into that. But uh actually I did like his performance a lot in Pulp Fiction, just as sort of like this scatterbrained idiot. So that was kind of fun yeah. from my perspective. I, I think, all right, I think we've covered some really good ground here and, yeah. you know, talked about... It's, it's you know, great on the Tarantino discussion, even though part of the thing with Tarantino is that is that he's not, is that he doesn't directly talk about social issues or whatever. It's interesting that, like, it, it kind of unlocked that in us in a lot of ways that that we got into like a big a bigger conversation, socio political conversation than we ever have before when talking about Tarantino. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. All right. Okay, guys, let's wrap it up. Nerd you later. Nerd you later. Nerd you later.